From Brooklyn, New York, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Bear Podcast. Friday edition. Mm, fun times. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's been a, been a long week. Let's, let's just get straight into it. And we're talking about brand loyalty. Uh-huh. And um, I think brand loyalty is an interesting subject because, you know, you've seen a ton of studies I wouldn't say studies, actually. You've seen, uh, you've seen a ton of articles sort of say, like, the next generations aren't brand loyal, right? Like, mm-hmm. they they're, they switch. They go between things. They, you know, they're loyal to a category, but not an actual brand. I actually don't think that's true. Mm-hmm. You know, for the, the amount of the rise of certain products, like, as we talked about on this Monday's episode, or I mentioned Casamigos, right? Yep. So there's some people that are quite loyal to that tequila, uh, mm-hmm. or 1942, or you could mention fashion brands or things like that, Supreme or whatever, right? There's lots of brand loyalty out there, but but not in the same way that there used to be, I don't think. But I'm curious, like, what do you both think creates, you know, strong brand loyalty among certain brands and certain people, and not amongst others? That's a good question. Um, I think quality mm-hmm. is definitely part of it, but I think consistency as well. Um, mm-hmm. That's something we've discussed quite a bit. Like if you know that, I mean, I, I think there's a beverage alcohol maybe mm-hmm. uh, specifically, but like if you like the taste of something you want to eat, it's like reliable and you can go back to it again and again. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's probably the biggest reason why people are brand loyal and also availability, right? Interesting. You can't get, if something is really great and you love it, but you can't get it, Right. Forget it. What about you, Zach? What do you think creates brand loyalty? Well, so it's interesting. I think so often what what we see, whether it's maybe in beverage alcohol or other places, is brand loyalty is born out of some of what Joanna said in terms of like enjoying the product, obviously, and availability. Mm -hmm. But some of it is really about wanting to create an image for yourself. And I think that's why we look at, you know, why there's some people who say like, oh, you know, younger generations are not brand loyal. And it may just be because there hasn't been something in the category yet that captures their imagination or or describes themselves, define themselves the way they want to be defined. And I think about, you know, how much advertising is, is focused around that very idea, whether it's, you know, the idea that you're someone who drinks, you know, you're Jack Daniels because you associate with, you want, you want to be known as the kind of person who drinks Jack Daniels or, um, you know, you drink, you know, White Claw because it's what mm-hmm. kids do or like th- there's all these sort of ways. And, and for many of us, you know, we're our, our initial forays into drinking come at a time when we're we are really looking to kind of define our personalities, our senses of self. And just like people define themselves through fashion, through, you know, the music they listen to, the TV shows they watch, whatever they're, you know, they define themselves through what they drink. It's a thing we do socially. It's a thing that people respond to and, and judge people on and or, or just make assumptions about people based on. And I think the the last piece of this that I'll mention right at the top is that I think the other reason why we're seeing kind of a complicated story with brand loyalty is frankly just there's a lot more out there in beverage alcohol than there was 20, 30 years ago. And so a person can be perhaps less absolute brand loyal and more category loyal because whether it's tequila, whiskey, wine, beer, et cetera, there are so many more choices. And it would Mm -hmm. not make a lot of sense for very many people in 2022 to be like, you know, my drink of choice all the time, every time I drink mm-hmm. is Miller Lite. Mm-hmm. Like that just is, a, that's, a, that's a way that you would have defined yourself as a drinker 30 years ago, perhaps. But in, in the modern landscape, they just, I, I don't think there would be very many people who are in their 20s, say, who define themselves solely through one beer or one spirit. 
Yeah, I think that's a really good point, actually. I, I remember a seminar that Dale DeGroff was giving, and he was talking about gins and how, you know, back in the day, like there was beef eater, and that's pretty much it. Mm-hmm. And and now things are so different, obviously, in, in the gin category, but like in, in categories across beverage alcohol as well, that there's so much more available to people now. You don't have to be brand loyal. No, and I but I think, like, so Zach, what, what you basically just described was the David Acker model of brand equity. Mm-hmm. And- Acker is considered to be probably the ultimate guru when it comes to branding. He wrote a lot of books throughout his career. Um, most like if you were to hire McKinsey or things like that to come yeah. in and, and they would, they would look at his models and what he talks about with brand equity is brand equity really is about looking at your brand through a few different lenses. One is your brand as a person. So like if your mm-hmm. brand was a person, who would that person be, right? Is your, is, is your brand Carrie Bradshaw, right? Or is your brand, I don't know, like someone who doesn't live in New York City and uh, – yeah, <laughs> There are I'm people who don't of, live in New York City? My God. No, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of like another example. And I'm like, well, I, I don't know, not the, – the, the person from Scream. I don't know. Anyways, right? It's like who is the person wow. – <laughs> You know, what are <laughs> like, the villain from Scream drink? My God, I, I want to know. But so who is the brand? Who are the – who? Are, and then like literally you create a universe around that brand. Like who are uh-huh. the brand's friends? All those things. And I think – the, what we've seen so much in beverage, especially recently, is a race to mass that there are very few brands that actually have taken the time to invest in their brand equity and say, this is my audience, mm-hmm. right? This is the people we are going to appeal to. And also, I think it's become kind of taboo to talk about that, right? Like, we don't like to know, especially in today's you know, times that they're like, we are separating people by demographics and socioeconomics and things like that and targeting. That is what's happening. And the brands that are the best at that are the ones that still do have brand loyalty because they build the equity with specific groups of people and they support those specific groups of people. And because they do that, they are very successful. I would, I would say, right? Like if you look at a bunch of different examples, right? Hennessy has been incredibly, incredibly successful for decades at targeting black Americans. They yeah. have been, and they've been very loyal to them since World War II. They were the first ever spirits brands to take out ads in Ebony magazine, mm-hmm. right? So they, they've been there forever. And so that group of people rewards them with massive amounts of loyalty. Sky Vodka and Barefoot. You know, have both been brands that have been extremely supportive of LGBTQ, mm-hmm. right? And those are communities that support those brands, and that is what it means to build brand equity. And I think a lot of the brands don't do that. Instead, like my issue with with Jen, I, I to, to push back against Dale DeGroff is not just that it was only Beefeater; it's that every fucking gin says they're the perfect gin for the gin and tonic. Okay, so then where's the brand equity? So then what differentiates me as mm-hmm. a Tanqueray gin and tonic drinker from a Hendrix gin and tonic, tonic drinker from a, you know, Gordon's gin and tonic? Nothing besides I may, may be stupid because I pay Hendrix prices and don't just get Gordon's, mm-hmm. right? Whereas like if you invest and say, no, Tanqueray is for the martini people. Mm. You know, and, and the more sophisticated gin drinkers, then I am a sophisticated gin drinker because I don't fuck. I don't fuck with the gin and tonic, man. That's that's for <laughs> non. That's for you know what I mean. That's that's brand equity. 
And there's mm. so much of that not happening in alcohol now because mm-hmm. everyone's just like, how big of the pie can we get? Yeah. And actually, I think that's why so many brands aren't succeeding in the way that they could be because they're sitting here trying to just go for as as much mass as possible. You see in bourbon too, everyone wants the old fashioned. Well, if everyone drinks an old fashioned, then like what makes you unique? Like yeah. what does that say about you as a person? If, if I want you to walk into my house and if I have a certain brand on my bar cart, say, I know – Adam's a sophisticated individual. He, you know, he understands the finer <laughs> things in life, whatever, what, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's what people are looking for. That's why, why do you think people want to have platinum Amexes and black cards and, you know, drive certain cars? It's all about what it says about you, as you've been saying, Zach, and that's all brand equity. And I think it'd be great if we get back to that. Mm-hmm. In a lot of beverage alcohol, and stop just everyone trying to race towards the the, the biggest trend, saying well, we can we can be there too, we can be there too, because yeah. that's where then you just you basically exist in a nothingness, right? You're there for a little bit, and then no one's loyal to you in the long run. Mm-hmm. Well, I wonder too, Adam um, and Joanna, because I think a, a curious piece about this that I, I don't know from a you know sort of an inside the games perspective exactly, but. Has some of this also changed because so many of us now exist in a world where so many things are advertised in a way that they're tailored directly to us? You know, they show up in our Instagram feeds, they show up in our, Mm. if we use Facebook, they show up in our Facebook feeds, etc. And so, whereas you think about like the way that things were marketed in the past, you know, a, a brand... Yes, I mean, you described some examples of maybe sort of slightly smaller audience brands, but you think about how, you know, brands would put themselves in, you know, they'd be Super Bowl ads, or they would be, you know, on the most popular network TV shows, or they would be, Mm -hmm. you know, they would put themselves in prime time, etc, in a way to sort of do what you were talking about to try and get that mass um, attention. And maybe in that they would sort of give some cues to their potential drinkers of like, okay, if you're this, if you see yourself as this kind of person, we're the beer spirit, whatever for you. But now like so few people interact with those. I mean, there's a few of those things that exist. I mean, the Super Bowl still happens and all that, Mm -hmm. but like so many of us interact with advertising in what seems to me, at least from my, my vantage point as a much more tailored view. And so you might almost be brand loyal without even realizing it. Hmm. Yes, I think that there is much more though of a in especially in social there's like this race to homogenization of like every all these fucking brands look the same that are created for social. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Right? Yeah. Like and so it, it, all that it says to people when someone when someone walks into your house and you know you have great Jones cookware and you have Brightland olive oil and you have, you know, X, Y, or Z new thing on your bar card, whatever. Everyone's like, oh, they they like Instagram. <laughs> like, <laughs> they're a huge Instagram user. I don't know, and, and they're probably a millennial, and mm-hmm. that's that's really about it. Whereas I think a lot of these, especially top luxury brands, of which let's not forget, the majority of alcohol are luxury brands, right? When you look at like fashion luxury brands, et cetera, they're not as on social, mm-hmm. right? They're doing really cool digital campaigns. They're doing really cool stuff digitally with digital publishers. They're doing print stuff. They're, but they're not like, they're not trying to homogenize. They're, they're, and they're going with specific niche people too. They're not going mass because they're saying like, we are for a niche audience, you know, like that's, that's, we, we want to be with the influencers who care about what, this says about them Mm -hmm. and that sort of then, cause then they know those influencers will, you know, influence their friends. Like, yeah. 
Well, and you also want to stay out of that thing that we talked about last year, which is like premium mediocre, right? Like, yeah. I think you want to like, like for some of these brands, if they were on Instagram a lot, they would run the risk of being confused with what you described, you know, Adam, the sort of that sort of ubiquitous aesthetic that that is premium mediocre. Right. Mm-hmm. And like, I mean, I think one of the ones that's super interesting to me, and I'm curious, you know, what you think about this, Zach, as, as a SOM, is one of the brands I would argue wine drinkers are incredibly loyal to that is a premium brand is Vuv. <laughs> I was going to th- I thought you might say Dom Perignon, but it's I have some more thoughts about both. So, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that brand, you know, again, it's owned by LVMH. They are one of the best in the world at branding and building brand equity. Like they've done an incredible job at making people feel like when they order Vuv, they've, they're successful. They are, you know, they're, they're doing well. They're of a, a certain class, mm-hmm. like whether or not Assam wants to believe that it's a quality champagne or, or it, whether or not it is right that they built so much brand equity there yeah. that that brand is just insane. Oh, for sure. And I think a lot of that is, is comes back to this exact topic that we've been discussing, which is this notion of with some of these things with brand loyalty and, and sort of the notion of choosing something in part because of you like the taste, but also you like what it says about you. Then I think with some of these things like maybe Vuvclico or, or as, as I said, Dom Perignon um, and others that like, it's not to say the taste doesn't matter. I think if it was garbage, people wouldn't probably would stop drinking it. Mm-hmm. But at some point, you know, you're in a lot of cases, people are buying that they are ordering that mm-hmm. for the, the way it looks right for this feeling, as you said, Adam, mm-hmm. that it gives them to be the purchaser of it and the consumer of it and whether or not, you know, and this is something that I think would behoove our, our beverage professional listeners. Sometimes you have to give someone that feeling and whether or not you personally don't think that, you know, that the Vuv for $150 or Dom P for 400 or whatever is the best use of their money. They may not be looking for the ultimate flavor expression as much as they're looking for the ultimate the expression of what they how they see themselves. Yeah, the ultimate image expression expression. Mm-hmm. Exactly, Joanna. And and that, you know, we can feel how we want to feel about that, but it's it's important that that we all understand what's going on and that yeah, that those things are branded so so uh, elegantly to convey that sense of self to people. Yeah. Um, you know, you it's a purchased image. Mm-hmm. I hear everything that you're saying, and I agree with it. But I also think there's a different kind of brand loyalty. And maybe this is just an ultra, like we've been talking about like our parents' generation yep. and their brand loyalty. And I, I understand there was obviously there was there were ads back then for specific brands, and maybe they saw them and they said, I would want, I want to look like that, or I want to associate with that brand. But I feel like it's kind of different. Um, you know, thinking of certain spirits that, you know, my grandfather used to drink or something like that. Um, was that really about the image or was that a different kind of brand loyalty or has it evolved? It's just evolved from then. I think it always was about an image or a group that he was a part of. Right. So I think, and I think that that's where the really, that's, that's how really amazing brands are born is Mm -hmm. the, the, and, and, and basically are continue to have life is you have to be able to say to yourself as that brand, we wouldn't show up there. That's cool that the opportunity is on the table, mm. but that's not where our brand lives. Yeah. And that's and that's where like that thinking about the brand as as a person, mm-hmm. you know, makes a lot of it makes a lot of sense. Like, would 
Again, I'm using the Carrie Bradshaw, whatever. Let's say, <laughs> let's say Carrie is Vuv. I think she's actually pretty much. She, we could say she's Vuv Clico, right? Would Carrie ever go to a warehouse party in, I don't know, middle of the woods, Pennsylvania? Probably not. Vuv's not going to show up there, mm-hmm. right? Like, <laughs> but she would totally be at, you know, top of rock center. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's, it's thinking about like, where does the brand show up? And even if there was, even if there was going to be a hundred thousand people at this random warehouse party and there's lots of sales to be made, the brand has to make the decision. Where does it live? Mm-hmm. Right. Is this a Brooklyn brand? Is this, you know, a Brooklyn hipster brand that's going to li- be all about the craft and the DIY? Then what other brands does it surround itself with? Or is this a mass market, you know, luxury brand? Is this a high end luxury brand? Like, and I do think when I think about my grandfather, Specifically, he was a big Seagram's drinker mm-hmm. and, and he and his friends drank Seagram's and they drank Seagram's for a few reasons. One, my grandfather was an immigrant, right? And mm-hmm. so he drank Seagram's because it was affordable, but also he drank Seagram's because Seagram's was owned by the Bronfman family. And he was very happy to be supporting mm-hmm. a Jewish family owning a big spirits brand. Because mm-hmm. to him, they had achieved like the, the Bronfins had achieved like this incredible new world dream. And he's drinking Seagram's as this, you know, immigrant from Lithuania. And so that to him was part of this image he was yeah. embracing. Right. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so, and I think there's a lot of that, right? I think there's a lot of, I'm sure you can talk to people from all different groups that could say that. Right. And that's sure. where when we did the big, like the big article years and years ago now on Hennessy, you go back and you look at that and you talk to people about how Hennessy really just became this behemoth in the black community. And it's because they were supporting black Americans since they came back from World War II. And then people can trace my grandfather drank it, my father drank it, my mother mm-hmm. drank it, my sister drank it, you know, and that's why it's just built so much loyalty amongst the, you know, that population of people. And I think that's really important. And it might not be just because of what it says about you. It's because the brand's always been there for you. It's always been in mm-hmm. that world. And, uh, mm-hmm. And yeah, I think that that's definitely changed somewhat now because we have the internet. We can say, oh, we can talk to so many different groups. But then mm-hmm. that does allow all those – everyone to move between. And so then brands falter. So there's an argument for both. Right? There's an argument that brand loss is important and not that it's important. Mm-hmm. Well, and you point out to Adam and I think – you know, to talk about what we're, I think, each going to be drinking. Like, yeah. there's also that uh, that element of you know inherited brand loyalty that's obviously extremely powerful. It doesn't mean that everyone drinks exactly what their parents, grandparents, whatever drank, but like, there's no doubt that the 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 things that you're the people around you as you grow up consumed are impactful or often your your first you know kind of entry point to the category. Yeah. Yep. Well, so I mean, speaking of brand loyalty. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, Zach, we all we all brought something to to drink this Friday. Yeah. That is a brand that either we were loyal to or someone in our family was loyal to. Uh, and Zach, why don't why don't you go first? What are you drinking? Sure. So I have uh, Bombay Sapphire, um, which wow. is not necessarily something that I personally was uh, su- have been super loyal to. But um, Bombay Sapphire was, I think, the first spirits brand that I was really aware of mm-hmm. as a kid. And it's because my uncle um, – so every year – so my, my mom's sister uh, married a guy who was – like this sort of object of fascination for me as a kid. Cause he was so different than anyone else. I knew he was a, he was a bricklayer from Iowa who was probably, I mean, maybe like five foot seven, but like 
easily 200 pounds and almost all muscle as you know being a, a bricklayer <laughs> for a long time would be and he loved gin he loved bombay sapphire and so every year uh for christmas my mom would get him a bottle and maybe once for his birthday too of bombay sapphire mm-hmm. and i just remember being sort of captivated by the whole thing as a you know as a at eight or nine year old or something just kind of being like you know my family did not drink hard alcohol really um my dad would drink a little bit of scotch from time to time but almost but 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 what 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 i saw consumed in my household was basically beer and wine and so the notion that like my uncle would drink martinis or um sometimes a gin and tonic and like that he had his like you know his brand and he mm-hmm. had like a, gin, a sapphire martini every night and like it was his thing and it was sort of an, an and now i realize kind of almost an anachronism but at the time you know it was just sort of like marvel to me that this was like a thing and it felt very it felt very adult, but it also felt very, you know, felt alluringly different. Um, and it's weird to me as I got older and learned that like actually Sapphire is like was like a relatively recent invention at the time. Like I think eighty mm-hmm. six is when the brand uh, was released, and and somehow I, I don't know how it was the thing that my uncle um, came to be, you know, kind of his gin. I, I you know, it's not like obviously he didn't grow up with it, or and it wasn't a thing he had been drinking for a long time um, he, th- at that point in the early nineties or whatever. But um, and I, I, to be fair, I, as I'm having it now, um, just chilled. So there's nothing else going on here. Um, it's a perfectly fine gin. I don't, I have some at home. Um, it's not like necessarily the gin I use for everything, but um, I think it's a well-made gin and like, yeah. So that that's what I got. How about, how about you, Joanna? Um, well, I have a, a, a similar, not, I don't have an uncle who drinks a Bombay <laughs> Sapphire, but um, no, I have similarly not my particular brand. I, I actually don't find myself very brand loyal at all. Um, I like yeah. to try different things and maybe I'll return to something, but I'm not like I get the same thing every time. Um, I, I have a bottle of Stoli here that was in mm. my freezer. <laughs> and this is because my, my parents drink Stoli. I think I've mentioned before that they're, my parents are vodka drinkers and yeah. they drink vodka martinis. And I say this in quotes because they're not really martinis. They're just cold vodka with cold olives. Vodka. Um, <laughs> and they've actually, uh, the brands that they've been loyal to have changed over the years. They were big gray goose people for a while. Uh, They went through a kettle one phase um, and now they really like Stoli and they like Stoli elite, but I didn't have any of that. Um, So I always have a bottle of of Stoli or some, some one of those brands in my freezer. So that's why I have a Stoli right now. Very cool. Yeah. What about you, Adam? So I have doors white label. Mm -hmm. My, my dad and my his father were Doors drinkers, mm-hmm. and my dad has now moved on. I, I, there's there used to always be a handle of Doors <laughs> that was in like the liquor cabinet that I knew my dad could have. Like he'd have a scotch free My dad's definitely like become much more of a wine drinker in his retirement. Nice, uh, much more into wine, and but he used to all and and you know he likes now gin cocktails and things like that. He was always a big gin drinker too, but. Was, I I don't know why for, for he always seemed to go between gins, he because he was a gin, like almost what we're talking about right the the Dale like the Dale DeGroth like my dad didn't really care he was like sometimes he would have Bombay mm-hmm. not even Sapphire just the Bombay he'd have Gordon's whatever mm-hmm. he was making gin and tonics like what did he care he, he was more loyal to his tonic <laughs> water which was Canadian Club but when it came to Scotch he it was always Doors White Label and I you know I feel like it was because for him it was. It's a great blended scotch. I'm tasting it now. It's to- it's a delicious blended scotch. But, you know, it made you feel a little bit sp- like you, you weren't following the masses drinking Johnny Walker. Mm-hmm. It was almost like you knew something more. Mm. You know, like you were a savvier consumer because you drank Doors. 
because you're drinking blended scotch, but like you drank Doors, and there was mm-hmm. something about Doors, and it wasn't this huge mass market product. And I think again, you know, now Johnny Walker is not like the you know it's still the number one blended scotch brand, but I think just an American consciousness. It's not at the same level it used to be, where like people were stealing it because it was so popular and blah blah blah. Um, it's it's past that time, I think, and hopefully on its way back. But Doors, I think, is has always felt like it's like it, you were in the know if you drank Doors. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, my dad's professor, you know, academic, like <laughs> a little bit of that, like being in the know. And so that's what he drank. And, uh, I don't know, just drinking it right now, like on the rocks, it just reminds me of, you know, having a glass of scotch with him, like when I was early days of 21 and like one, you know, post 21 and wanting to see what that was like and coming home from college and like him and I having a scotch on the rocks and chatting and the scotch mm-hmm. kind of starts to, you know, the, the rocks start to melt and the scotch gets a little bit more watered down, but it's just, it's like such an easy drinking yeah, liquid mm-hmm. and just has a little bit of smoke, but a little bit of sweetness and it just, it's super consistent and I can see why he was so loyal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We'll have to do it. We should do an, a, a podcast episode about, why blended scotch fell out of favor and why it should come back in favor, but that would be a different right. time. <laughs> so yeah, so uh, well, Zach, Joanna, enjoy enjoy your drinks on this Friday. Mm-hmm. Thank you. <laughs> I'd love to hear if, if there are any brands that yes, people who are super loyal to, uh, whether they be wine, beer, or spirits. Let us know, and um, I'll see you both on Monday. See you then. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my Vine Pair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping me make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, Vine Pair Tasting Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the Vine Pair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.